Rich, what a glorious thing that regardless of what happened this week and what will happen in the week to come, we can sing that because that does not depend on our circumstances, but the finished work of Christ who holds us fast and will bring us home. You guys can go and have a seat. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Patrick Crandall, and I have the joyful privilege of pastoring here at Covenant Grace, and I'm very thankful to be able to open the Word of God for you this morning. We're going to do that from Matthew 7. Matthew 7, we're going to pick up in verse 28. I'm going to get into Matthew 8 as well this morning. We have finished up the Sermon on the Mount, and we are moving on to the next section of Matthew as we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. That's what we're going to be seeing today from this passage. If you guys would, give attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to read Matthew seven twenty-eight through 8, 4. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, say that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for gathering us together again this morning as your people to to care for us, to nourish us through your word, to be encouraged by our mutual fellowship in the faith, uh, to uh, build one another up through the graces and gifts that you've given us. Uh, This is such a precious time and a precious gift, and we thank you for it. And we thank you now that we get to sit under your word together. Uh, Lord, I pray for your help for myself, that I would serve your people well through your word this morning, that you would guard it, keep it your word and not mine. Lord, I pray for all of our hearts, that your spirit would wield your word with each of us exactly the way that we need. Thank you that we can trust you to do so. May you increase, may we decrease. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, so we're leaving the Sermon on the Mount after a long time in there and kind of coming up back out of, the, out of the trees, back to kind of a bigger picture view of Matthew. I want to first kind of orient you on where we are in the larger scope of what Matthew uh, is saying, where we are in the, the broader scope of Mer- Matthew's gospel. You know, back when we first started walking through this, I told you we've got, we've got four different gospel accounts in Scripture, and each one has its own uh, kind of angle or perspective on the life of Jesus. They all work together. They all fit. And working together, they give us a better picture of who Jesus is and his work in the world. But Matthew's particular angle is... It is the gospel of the king and the kingdom, right? And you can see this right from the jump. The, very, the first few chapters of Matthew, Matthew is establishing Jesus' rightful place as God's king, God's Messiah, the Christ who was to come. And he does this in a myriad of ways. And we see that really through chapter 4. And then at chapter 4, that brings us up to his earthly ministry, where he starts to actually work. And in chapter 4, verses 23, we really have a summary of what his ministry consisted of. There we read this. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus' ministry was two primary things. He proclaimed the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom that he was bringing, that he was ushering in as the king, 
And then he showed the kingdom through things that he did. Healing, his interactions with demons, things that we're going to see. So what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount was just the first example we had of his proclamation of the kingdom. That's what that was. That's what we spent the last, I don't even know how many months, exploring. was Jesus proclaiming his kingdom. And now we're going to move into seeing Jesus showing this kingdom, demonstrating it, showing what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven breaks into the kingdom of earth. And Matthew's gospel is going to alternate that way for, for most of the rest of it. Right? You're going to see sections where God is proclaiming, where Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom, and then he's going to show it, proclaim and show. There's five big sections that go like that. So we kind of get to the culmination of his earthly ministry. So now we get our first glimpse Not a summary statement of what it looks like for Jesus to display the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that he is bringing. And this is important because sometimes you've probably heard the the whole thing about uh, Jesus kind of being a good moral teacher, right? He's he's got a good system of ethics. A lot of times that kind of stuff comes up around the Sermon on the Mount because this is probably his most famous sermon, most famous teaching. And sometimes that's how Jesus gets talked about. But uh, somebody who's just a good teacher, a good ethicist, doesn't do what we're about to see. Jesus just doesn't talk about some, some kind of mythical, idealistic potential society that could happen if everybody would do these things he talks about. That is not what he is in the business of. Jesus is a king who is bringing a kingdom, Right? He's not just pontificating about things that might be or would be really great if they happen to happen. He is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. The age to come is breaking in to this age with the arrival of Jesus. And part of this is why they had the response that they did to the Sermon on the Mount. We saw in those first couple of verses, right? Jesus finishes preaching, and what do they say? They were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. What made Jesus different is that he was announcing a kingdom, but he was the king. He actually had authority. He was the one who had the power and the ability to bring this thing about. He wasn't talking about something he wished would happen or something somebody else was going to do. He was talking about what he himself was going to enact. It was very, very different than the scribes and teachers that they knew. would look at stuff and kind of make up some rules and put burdens on people that they couldn't even do themselves. This was very, very different. And they're enraptured by it. Like, wow, we've never heard anybody talk like this. Let's follow this guy. Let's see what happens next. So he leaves, and he's got this. He's captured the crowd. They're following. They're hanging on every word, and he leaves. So what's next? Right? Well, what, what might we expect? It's a king bringing a kingdom. He's got this big following. They're all amped up. What should he do now? Right? Probably some recruit some influential folks to get on board, join the campaign. Maybe get some donors with a lot of money, resources. You know, build the momentum, right? We got something started here. That's kind of what we would expect. That's what they expected. But Jesus, as we will see, so often does not do what's expected. Because his kingdom is not like the kingdoms we are familiar with. In fact, he does pretty much the opposite thing that anybody would expect or anybody would think to do. He engages with a leper. He engages with a leper. 
Now, we've got to take a few minutes on this because this is something that's very distant from us culturally, right? We, leprosy still exists. We call it Hansen's disease now. But it's not nowadays what it was back then. It doesn't carry the same meaning now that it did back then. And so we need to really understand what this meant for Jesus to be engaging with this particular man. What did it mean to be a leper in Jesus' day? Well, we got to start with the physical, right? Leprosy was a skin disease. Actually, they used leprosy to kind of encompass a lot of different skin diseases that we differentiate now. They weren't quite as, you know, dialed in on the medicine diagnostic stuff back then, so it was kind of a, a big blanket term for these skin diseases. Very painful, very obvious to the site. You couldn't hide this from people. So that's leprosy itself. But honestly, the physical aspect of leprosy was probably the least, uh, the least hard part um, probably the least of the suffering that came with it. Because leprosy also made you unclean. Leprosy made you unclean. So if you were a leper, you were declared unclean. You could no longer worship at the temple with everyone else. You could not participate in the community. You had to move outside of society. You had to, if you went anywhere where people were, you had to go around yelling, unclean, unclean so that they could steer clear of you. But if we look at the Old Testament, leprosy was sometimes given as a judgment by God on some people. This happened to, to Moses' sister Miriam when she questioned his authority that God had given him. Uh, Naaman, a Syrian commander. King Azariah of Judah. They all were punished with leprosy for doing certain things. Well, the fact that God uses that to punish, judge certain people led to it being seen commonly as a judgment of God on anybody who happened to have it, right? Think about the way that, uh, like, Job's friends treated him when he fell under all those assaults from Satan, right? You must have done something wrong. What is it? Stop hiding it. Confess. Repent. You did something wrong. It's like, I didn't. It's like, yes, you did, right? Or when Jesus uh, is, encounters the man born blind, and he's asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? There's this assumption that the the physical frailty, the physical suffering is as a result of this sin and guilt. And so there was a lot of that stigma attached to it. It didn't just make you ceremonial unclean. There was also this thinking that, oh, these people are probably wicked in some way, probably sinful. They probably deserve this in some way or another. So there's the physical, there's the spiritual, and all of that led to incredible social consequences. These things made lepers a social pariah. They could no longer be around anyone who was not a leper. They were cut off from their families, their communities. They had to live outside in camps. Uh, they couldn't participate in anything. So when we think about leprosy, you know, think about a skin disease, that's really just scratching the surface of what this was. What leprosy meant was that you were unclean. You were essentially cut off from the the, the worship of God's people. You were cut off from all social relations, right? You were never touched again by, by a human being. Like, that is incredibly heavy stuff. And on top of it, leprosy was considered an incurable disease. They did not cure it. 
they, you know, if somebody got better from it, it was just kind of like, oh, wow, God, that's amazing. We have no idea how that happened. Praise God, miracle. That's the only way it happened. It was deemed incurable. So once you got this, once you were diagnosed with leprosy, it was almost like a living death sentence. You're alive, but you suffer physically. You live under this, this assumption of guilt by everybody around you. And you don't even get to be around them anymore, actually. They just are at a distance judging you. You don't get the blessing of God's means of grace in worshiping with his people anymore. In a lot of ways, it was maybe worse than dying. It was to live this long, slow death of of losing all that was good in life. And so leprosy, in a very unique way, and maybe in some ways unique to, to any other kind of disease we could talk about in Jesus' day, it pictures sin and its effects on us, right? Sin, of course, we know from Genesis, leads to physical death. Adam and Eve were supposed to obey God, and it would lead to life. But they disobeyed, and that brought death on the human race. We were not made and designed to die, but now we do because we live under that curse. But there's more to it than just physical death, right? We are also at odds with one another because of sin. I mean, just think about our world, now or any other point of history. And this started the second generation of human beings with Cain and Abel, right? One generation into sin, and we've got a brother murdering his brother. And things haven't gotten better, right? We treat each other horribly. That's sin, right? We were designed to love and be in community with another. Instead, we use and exploit each other for our own selfish gain. And of course, most seriously, is that our sin separates us from God. Physical death is really just a picture of the, the real death that sin brings. To be removed from God's blessing and to be brought under his wrath. God is holy, he is perfect, he cannot abide sin. He is perfectly just. And because of that, our sinfulness separates us from him. But it doesn't separate us in the sense that we're just away. It separates us from him in any favorable way. We are now under his wrath. This is really what the clean, unclean distinction in Israel was, was designed to kind of teach and keep in front of Israel's face. The difference between something that, that is holy and something that is not. Something that is corrupted. To keep in front of their face the holiness of God. So in a lot of ways, leprosy really does show us the, an image of what our sin does. And how our sin works within us. So leprosy is not merely a disease. It's, it's when we really understand what it is and what it meant. Back then, we're talking about something very, very significant. When this man comes to Jesus, and he comes and he kneels before Jesus and says, and he says, um, oh, what's my spot? There it is. <laughs> Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I mean, this is a man who who is absolutely desperate. This is not a man who's coming, bringing his accomplishments, coming to show Jesus what he has to offer. Everything around him screams that he is absolutely worthless, that the world would be better off if he did not exist. That is what this man feels. This is what he is told all the time. And he's even given the impression that this is what God thinks of him, not just people. That's who comes to Jesus now. 
And it's only when we understand that that we can really understand Jesus here. All right, so how does Jesus respond? You know, this, this whole story is basically two lines. It's so short, and yet there's, there's so much richness packed in here about who our God is. So Jesus responds. He stretches out his hand and he touches him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. So again, if we don't really understand all those dynamics of leprosy, we can just see like, oh yeah, cool. Jesus healed the skin disease. It went away right, real quick. That's awesome. Cool miracle. Good stuff. True. It did show Jesus' power. He could heal this thing that other people couldn't heal. He healed it right away. That's, that's impressive. But that's actually the least impressive thing about what happens here. It's actually the least important thing about what happens here. This shows us so much about who our God is and who Jesus is and how, what Jesus means for how a holy God relates to an unrighteous, a sinful people, an unclean people. The first thing we see, the first thing we have to note is the willingness of Jesus. When this leper comes to Jesus, he acknowledges, he, like, there's, he has nothing to hold over Jesus. Like, you should do this for me because I'm good or because I have something. He has no leverage. He just says, you can do this if you want to. That's it. That's all he's got. He acknowledges he's, he's at the mercy of what Jesus chooses to do. He can't compel Jesus to move in any particular direction. And Jesus has, does, is under no obligation to heal this man. It would not be unjust for him to not do so, right? As a holy God, a holy God is not entitled, required to forgive sin. He can be just and remain who he is. And yet, what do we see Jesus say? I will. I will. Those two little words, which are one word in Greek, <laughs> but those two little words, that little phrase, matters so much, dear church. In Jesus, when the holy God of the universe comes upon a desperate, unclean person that says, you can make me clean, the answer that they find is, I will. I will. See, it's all well and good if Jesus is powerful and he can do all these great miracles, but it doesn't matter for us, for our well-being, unless we know how he is going to use that power. What is driving and guiding the way he uses that authority? And that is what this shows us. Jesus wills to relate to the man's uncleanness with mercy and grace. He delights to show his power, not in justice here, but in redeeming, redeeming what is cursed, what is sick, what is ashamed, what is cut off, what is guilty, what is dead. We have a God who delights in redemption of sinners. It's the whole reason for Jesus' first coming. You don't even need it if God doesn't love this. He just comes back, judges things, and it's over. Easy. The first coming of Jesus is all about so this can happen. So that the perfect holy God of the universe can relate to unclean sinful people with mercy and grace. 
Our God delights to redeem sinners. I love how Psalm 137 puts it. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. What a phrase, plentiful redemption. We have a God who abounds in faithful love and is overabundant in redeeming sinful, broken, dead things. Amen? That is who our God is. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God is, and this is what he does. When he encounters us in Ecclesiastes, he says, I will. This is what I desire to do. He doesn't just show his power here. He shows that his power is directed by a will to redeem his people. This is why we have verses like Romans 8, 28, that we know God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's not just powerful. He's not just sovereign. He exercises that sovereignty for the good of his people. Always. So we see the will of Jesus here. But we see more. We see more. We see the righteousness of Jesus here as well. And let me draw that out what I mean there. Because what's very significant here is the way that Jesus heals the leper. He could have done it anyway. This is the the person of the Trinity in whom and through whom all things were made by a word. Right? He doesn't have to lift a finger. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything to heal this man. How does he do it? You can actually answer. He touches the leper. He touches him. That matters. That matters incredibly. I mentioned earlier, but this man had not been touched, had not experienced normal human touch. We have this all the time. We take it for granted. Since this malady afflicted him, and we don't know how long he suffered in this way. It's hardest for us to, to wrap our heads around just how shocking and stunning it would have been when Jesus stepped forward and touched him. Imagine he probably pulled back a little bit because nobody's touched him in a loving way in however long this has gone on. I didn't really appreciate this for a long time, and then there was a season in my life a while ago where I was doing some um, work with homeless folks in a downtown urban area, and I never thought about this at all. And then one of the things I realized after a while of being there, out of all the things we did, helping them out with food and all this other stuff, the thing that impacted them most was that you would touch them. That you would just hug them. Like, they, they stank. Everybody ignored them. The fact that you would look them in the eye and talk to them like a human and that you would touch them, that you'd put a hand on their shoulder, that you'd give them a hug, they'd literally just break down in tears sometimes. Because I had someone tell me, nobody has touched me in, in three years one time when I gave them a hug. Right? That's the kind of thing this man went through. And then to have, have Jesus come and, and to touch him when nobody would do this would have been stunningly powerful and profound. But that's not even the most profound thing about it. 
right, the most profound thing about it is that the normal way clean and unclean works, right, is that unclean things make clean things dirty, right? If your kid has dirty hands and they touch your clean walls, what happens? Does your kid's hand get clean? Well, maybe if they really touch the walls good, right? But generally, you end up with dirty walls and dirty hands, right? If you dump dirty water into clean water, what happens? Do you end up with two cups of clean water? No. This is not how this works. And this is how ceremonial cleanliness worked in the Old Testament system. If you touched something that was unclean, you were unclean. And you had to go through this whole process procedure of becoming clean again. This is why the lepers had to go around crying out unclean to prevent other people from, to prevent from polluting other people. This is why they had to live outside of normal society. And what this shows us is that something unholy can never make something holy again, right? Something unholy cannot make itself holy. It cannot make anything else holy, right? It doesn't work like that. It's a little bit like, you know, once you, once you strike out, you can never bat a thousand again, right? It just doesn't work anymore. But it's totally different with Jesus. It's totally different with Jesus. Jesus touches what is unclean. And what happens? Does he become clean? Or does he become unclean? No. He doesn't have to go to the temple and present himself and show that he's cleaning. And he doesn't have to do the rituals. No, he doesn't get dirty. And what happens to what's unclean? It becomes clean. That's why Jesus tells him to go present himself, to prove that, yeah, this is really cleaned up so that the man can enter back into society and have restored to him all that he lost. Everything is upside down and backwards with Jesus. This is the only person who can do this. This is the only clean person who can touch something unclean. And rather than get polluted himself, he makes the unclean clean. This is what we need. This is what we've needed for all of human history since sin came in. We've needed someone who can do this, and no one's been able to do it. All we've been able to do is pollute and pollute and pollute. Nobody's been able to do this. And now someone can. Now someone can touch uncleanness and make it clean. That someone is Jesus Christ. Because of who he is, because of the superlative nature of his righteousness, he is able to take on our uncleanness and make us clean without ever becoming corrupt in and of himself. This is something only God can do. Particularly only that the God-man can do. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ there's a beautiful and, and, and very subtle connection to this in, in the servant songs of Isaiah. These were prophecies about Jesus written long before he showed up on the scene. Isaiah 53 is probably the most famous section of them. I want to read you a few verses from one of them. Here, Isaiah 53.3 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and with his wounds we are healed. Now this is the, the connection that ties it in, right? There's documents we call the, the Talmud, right? These are old, uh, Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament from around the time of Jesus. And where they're helpful is that they help us understand the way the Jews, who Jesus is interacting with and engaging with, understood what they read in their Old Testament. And if you read commentary from the Talmud on this particular passage, it's fascinating. Where it says, we esteemed him stricken, they actually translate that, we esteemed him a leper. That word stricken to them, that's what they associated with, being, being struck, being judged with this curse of leprosy, like they saw happen throughout the Old Testament. So when they read that word, they said, yeah, this, that's what this is. And they saw this as so significant that when they described, in the Talmud, they described this suffering servant of Isaiah, they described him as the, the leper scholar. The leper scholar. Now go back and like read that passage again and thinking about the fact that that word stricken, if that's referring to leprosy. Read the, hear this first verse and think about the reality of being a leper that we talked about. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Sounds a lot like the life of a leper, doesn't it? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So the picture is, is Jesus taking on our curse. Jesus taking on and bearing our curse, bearing the wrath of God for our sin in our place so that he might heal us. Guys, Jesus knew his Old Testament. He knew it very well. He knew how the people he was talking to knew their Old Testament. And it's not a coincidence that he went from teaching the Sermon on the Mount into engaging the leper when they looked at these servant songs and saw this guy as the leper scholar, right? The guy who just gave this incredible, brilliant servant that left them jaw-dropping just went and touched a leper. One of the things he's doing is he's saying... I'm the suffering servant. The guy is here. I'm that guy. So he's going to, we see this throughout Matthew, all these signs of like, I'm the one you've been waiting for. This is another one connected to these prophecies of Jesus. And the beautiful thing that Isaiah 53 drives home is that the way Jesus heals us, he doesn't heal us from a distance, right? He saves us by uniting us to himself. He takes on the curse that is ours, and he gives us all the blessing that he has won. That's what Isaiah 53 is describing. It's describing him taking on what we deserve and bearing it before the Lord, that he may make many righteous by his righteousness. And it just gets better and more stunning the further you go because you know, our weakness and our suffering and our sin may be despised by men. Even when we're not guilty, a lot of times we are shamed over ways that we have suffered when there shouldn't even be any guilt in it. Right? This sort of thing happens. But how does Jesus respond to us? Right? Hebrews 2, 10 through 11. Listen to this. It is... Fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Listen to verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus, the holy, perfect, righteous God, comes so close to heal you. He unites you to himself by faith, so much so that you in all of your weakness, all of your guilt, all of your shame, think of all the worst things you've thought and done and said, all the things that you are ashamed of, all the things you think nobody will ever know. Jesus knows all of them. And he sees them and he does not back away. He does not despise you. He does not cast stones. He moves towards you. He puts his hand on you and nobody else will. And he is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. He is willing to associate himself with you. Who cares if men despise you? Jesus Christ, the God-man, calls you his own, puts his name on you, says you are mine. There's nothing more ennobling than that. Let the world say what it will. Who cares? Who cares? This is what Jesus does for us. Which leads us to, to the final thing I want you guys to see. And that's what this tells us about the nature of the kingdom. Right? Jesus just awed the crowd with this preaching. Like, man, this guy's good. I want to hear more of this. Excited to see where this goes. Everybody's a buzz. There's all this momentum. Everything's building. We know what we would do if we were wanting to build a kingdom. There's all sorts of logical next moves. But Jesus doesn't go to the powerful. He doesn't go to the wise. He doesn't go to the influential. He doesn't go to the capital and the throne. He does the opposite. He goes to the outcast. The person that other people won't even look at, that other people won't even touch or go near. And what we see is that this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as it breaks in, does not belong to those who are rich or powerful or bring a lot to the table in the world's eyes. That's not the kind of kingdom that this is. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29 tells us this is the exact opposite sort of kingdom. This kingdom actually comes to those who are not those things. It says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even though they, even things that are not, to bring things to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, this kingdom that's coming is not a kingdom where Jesus wants to do this thing, but he needs a whole bunch of help, so he's got to get together a, a you know, good band of capable folks to help make this a reality. It's not this kind of kingdom, right? There's no glory for the citizens of the kingdom to gain in this kingdom. This is a kingdom that we receive. This is a kingdom that is brought about by the work of one, Jesus Christ alone, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is a kingdom that the weak and the foolish receive with empty hands. Because it's won by Jesus alone. It's a different sort of kingdom. 
And this is going to be a problem for the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry. I'm like, no, it should be like this. Jesus, we should be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? You're talking about a kingdom, and this isn't very kingdom-y. Come on. Like, let's kick it into gear. And of course, we know it ends up where all the crowds leave. Everybody who's in, so intrigued right now leaves, and the king who's bringing this kingdom ends up on a cross. Right? A cross which was a sign of being under the curse of God. Looks like utter failure. Right? It looks like you know, some ambitious guy proclaiming this kingdom, and now, well, that didn't work. But in fact, that very moment, when everybody has abandoned him, and he's at this place where everything seems lost, and Satan and the demonic hosts are rejoicing. You know, they're pouring drinks and cheers because they finally won. That's actually where their downfall is. That's where sin is atoned for. That's where the citizenship of this kingdom is made. This is where the weak, the sinful, the broken get healed, right? This is where the dead get brought to life. There, when it looks like it's all over. This kingdom is inside out and upside down. And for the longest time, they're not gonna see it. But after he dies and he rises again and his spirit comes and fills his disciples, it's going to make sense. It's like, this is not a kingdom of power. This is a kingdom of redemption. This is a kingdom where those who are weak can be received by the strength of somebody who's outside of themselves. This is a kingdom where those who are unrighteous can find the throne of the God of the universe, the throne of mercy and grace because of the righteousness of another. This is a kingdom where those condemned to die by what they have done find life and resurrection because of the life of another. As this kingdom begins to break in, as Jesus begins to act, he's showing us the kind of kingdom we should be looking for, the kind of kingdom that we should expect to see. And brothers and sisters, this is the best news for us. If this was a kingdom of power where Jesus is out looking for the best, most qualified folks he can who are going to really bring something to the table. Anybody want to stake yourself? Put your hand up and say, hey, I'm your man. Anybody? Anybody manage to trump up a good enough picture of yourself to, to think you could do that? I hope not. I hope not. Because it wouldn't work. Right? The only kingdom that has any hope for us is the kind that Jesus is bringing. The kingdom for the weak and the foolish. The kingdom of people who can come to Jesus with nothing in their hands, just emptiness. Who can say, if you will, you can make me clean. That's who this kingdom's for. And that's the only kingdom that will work for sinners like us. And when we do, when we come to him like the leper empty-handed like that, bringing nothing of our own, nothing to say, look, Jesus, you should do it because of this, but simply saying, you can if you want to. His answer is always the same. He will, and he does, every time. Those who come to him, he will not cast out. He is abundant in redemption. He loves to redeem sinners. It is his glory to give his righteousness to those who have no righteousness of their own. If they will merely abandon theirs 
and throw themselves on him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And then as we see that picture and we see you for who you really are, oh man, you are, you are a God that is not like us. <laughs> it's hard for us to even fathom that, that you could be this good because we, none of us would do this the way that you do. None of us would be this gracious, this merciful as you are. But Lord, I pray this morning as we have heard your word and as your spirit works in us, you would give us the eyes of faith to truly see you for who you really are, that we would revel and glory in the fact that, that we are nothing, but we have received everything as a gift of grace because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. May that be our only boast, but may it be a loud, joyful, exultant boast that compels others that haven't found it, that are still weak, that are still ashamed, that are still dead in their sins, that would give them hope. If that person has found this, maybe, maybe I could too. And we can say, yes, brother, yes, sister, you can. He wills and he does. Lord, work this in our hearts by your spirit. Help us to bear witness faithfully and truly to who you are and how you work in the world as we are your representatives in it as your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.